Let me uh, welcome you and add my good morning. In my office here at the church, I have a piece of copy paper just taped to my desk, and it says, pray first. It's not a bad idea to do that, so let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together, to gather wherever we are to worship you this morning, to sing praises. Um, My prayer right now, Lord, that you would open our hearts, our minds, our ears for whatever you would have for us. Lord, would you encourage us, challenge us, inspire us, stir us towards yourself. Lord, may you use um, your scripture in these words to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to uh, worship today. I recognize that many of you um, are church partners uh, of the church here, and many of you aren't. So you may not know who that guy is standing up there talking to you. So I want to just do a quick introduction. My name is Brett Allen, and I'm on the staff here at First Presbyterian Church. Uh, My official title is the Minister of Family Life. So that means I think about family, parenting, marriage. I also oversee the student ministry, and I'm the director of the Orlando Heart of the City Fellows Program. So that's a little bit about what I do. Maybe a better introduction might be that I'm the short ball guy that kind of has a high voice that often gets mistaken as a female voice. And most of the time you can find me wearing a baseball cap and a cup of coffee in my hand. So that's kind of about who I am, but I'm, I'm glad to be here with you this morning. Glad that you're joining us for worship. Um, One of our traditions here at First Presbyterian Church is in reverence for the Word of God, we stand. So would you please stand wherever you are, and I'm going to read to you the scripture that is going to be at the heart and core of our service, our message this morning. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, And therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Uh, That scripture will be core to kind of what I have to say in the next few minutes. And one of the things I've experienced over the last couple months, and I'm sure you have too, is, and it's actually a new vocabulary word almost, like Zooming. I have done so much Zooming, whether it's meetings or just with friends, that kind of thing. Well, a couple weeks ago, I was on a Zoom call with about 15 guys that I've really kind of known from my past. And so we're on this Zoom call. I hadn't seen them in a while. And I found myself just staring at their faces. And they can't, you can't tell on a Zoom call that I was actually staring, but I was staring and I went from one face to another face. And I looked at Glenn's face and I thought, man, I love Glenn. He was such an instrumental part of my life back when he and I were friends and living in South Carolina together. And then I looked over at Buddy and just thought about the influence that he's had in my life. I looked at his face and I looked at Moldy's face. And I just had this moment where I just reflected on who these people had been in my life. And it was special. I kind of brought back a lot of feelings when I saw their face and just stared at it. Well, the next day is kind of often God does. I'm sitting and I'm still thinking about seeing those people's faces. And I was reminded about how the scripture talks about the face so often. And it's not that he doesn't talk about the feet and the knees and the stomach. It's the face. Psalm 27, your face, Lord, I will seek. 
Do not hide your face from me. Then number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Exodus 33, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And then Revelation 22, four, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There's a lot more verses that have to do with face, but I just thought it was interesting. There's something powerful um, that connects faces with each other. So I say all that to say, maybe in the next uh, weeks, months, when you're doing Zoom calls, FaceTime, whatever it is, uh, that you would um, recognize the faces in front of you and be grateful for them and even pray for them. And then the other thought I had was, um, I, we miss your face. Uh, I can't wait till we're back together and we can actually see each other face to face. Um, as you know, this is not a uh, new thought, but everybody has different styles of speaking, of communicating. So when our senior pastor, David Swanson's up there, he's preaching. I mean, he is a preacher. He's gifted, he's called. And so when he's in the pulpit, which is on most Sundays here, you're getting a sermon, you're getting a preaching. If my wife, Kim, was up here, she's not really a preacher, but she's a teacher. You'd almost feel like you're in class, like you need to pull out your notebook and take notes because she's teaching. So we all have our own styles of communicating. Well, mine's a little bit different um, because I'm different. And mine is more, um, I'm a storyteller. I just like to communicate through telling stories. So this morning, it's gonna feel a little bit more testimonial. Um, you're going to hear some of my story, and my hope is that God will use that to encourage you, to inspire you, to challenge you, to stir you toward Christ. Um, many of us in our congregation were at a marriage retreat this past February, and Jay and Jean Martin were our guest speakers, and they were speaking to about 75 couples, and basically they just told their story, their marriage story, and it was powerful. We were all moved by just someone sharing their story. It wasn't a nicely crafted three-point sermon. It was just someone sharing their story. So that's my hope this morning, is that as I share a little bit about what God's doing in my life uh, right now, it'll have some power, that God will use that. I've heard it said before, I'm not sure if it's really true, but somebody said it, that a preacher or a speaker only has one message. And then all they do is try to figure out a hundred different ways to give the same message over and over again, but doesn't sound like the same message, but it's one message. Well, that might actually be true for me. This might be the message that God has given me to speak and I just keep speaking it. So here it is. Don't be offended by this. You may already know this, but it's true. I am actually God's favorite. Sorry, everybody's got to have favorites, but I actually am God's favorite. He, he loves me the most. I actually think that um, to know God's love is actually to feel like I'm God's favorite. That's the message that if you know me, if you're like Haley and been around me, you've heard me say that. Um, I talk about it on my email signature at the church. It says God's favorite. Um, it's, it's, you just know that that's what I talk about a whole lot. It's by one message. But I really don't want to talk about that primarily. I want to talk about 
the sequel to that, but you need to know the origin of that in order to kind of understand it. So I want to tell you the story of where that whole God's favorite thing started. Um, our church, if you didn't know, we have a partnership with uh, Mission Emmanuel. It's a ministry in the Dominican Republic in Santo Domingo. And so when I moved back to Orlando in 2005, um, I started going down to the Dominican Republic and I would go down once, twice a year. And when you go down to the Dominican Republic, typically uh, you're part of a construction site and you go and you learn how to lay block and mix cement and all those kind of things. And I started this relationship, a friendship with a guy named Marcos. He was Haitian, but he worked for Mission Emmanuel. And Marcos would be on the site and he would teach us how to lay block and do all those kind of things. Well, Marcos and I got to know each other. He didn't know any English. I didn't know any Spanish. But every time I would go down, I would be with Marcos because he was my bud. And so I would come to the work site in the morning. I'd go, el profesor, meaning teacher. And he'd go, estudiante, my student. Every time, my professor, my student. So Marcos and I were tight. Well, this one particular summer, um, Marcos, we were working on a job site, and he taught me how to tie rebar together. So rebar is those metal poles that go down through the middle of the cement blocks, kind of hold the structure together, but you have to tie them together. And so he showed me how to do that. So the whole week, I'm tying rebar together, and Marcos, estudiante, professor, and... So it's the end of the week, and we're gathered at Club Bamboo, um, and we're getting ready to go back to the hotel and go to the airport. We're getting ready to leave. And there's, I don't know, 30 of us or so at Club Bamboo, and Marcos is there. And he kind of pulls me aside. So everybody's over here, and Marcos and I are over here. No English, no Spanish. And he reaches in his pocket, and he pulls out this. It's a rebar tying tool. It's Marcos's rebar tying tool. And he gives it to me. And it was at that moment that it's almost like time stopped for a second. And I looked around and I thought, everybody's over there. And Marcus and I are over here and he's giving me his rebar tool. And I thought, I think it's true. I'm Marcus's favorite. I mean, he loves me more than anybody else. I mean, he's, it's just him and I, and he's giving me his rebar tool. And it felt so good. Marcos loves me more than anybody else. I'm his favorite. So that's kind of part one. That's how that whole thing started. Nothing felt better than to be Marcos's favorite. To know God's love is to feel like you're God's favorite. So I've been talking about that a lot. Part two, this is the sequel to part one. So this is kind of really what I want to um, talk about more is about 16, 15, 16 months ago, I read a book by Jamie Smith called You Are What You Love. And it's a great book. I highly recommend it. But there was one thing in it that really stood out to me, this idea of the good life. When I say that, what comes to mind for you? The good life. Well, that was a question that I started thinking about. What's the good life? Or in the verse that we just read, what compels me? What compels me? What's the good life for me? How can I look at my life and the things that I do and the routines that I have and the decisions that I make? How can that help me discover what this good life actually is? So I've been wrestling with that question. I was wrestling with that question because I wasn't. And you know, I know the right answer. <laughs> you know, the good church answer. Oh, the good life, that's God, you know? Yeah, Jesus, that's the good life. 
is it really for you? I mean, does my life really say that? Or is that what really compels me? I also, it's, you know, I love a good cup of coffee. Is that the good life? No, it's deeper than that. It's something kind of deep down that you're living for, that compels you, that you really want deeply, that you live for. So anyway, I'm, I'm wrestling with that question. Um, and then last March, uh, the fellows, we went to the Monastery of the Holy Spirit. It's a monastery in Conyers, Georgia. And we had a solitude and silence retreat. We were there for three days, Thursday through Sunday. Um, total silence, Bible in a journal, no phones. We ate in silence. Um, it's a great retreat. And, and when I'm on those retreats, I participate with the fellows just while they're also having the solitude and silence. So this one particular day while we were while I was walking by myself, which is what I do on these retreats a lot, I started thinking about what, why, why does that idea of being God's favorite resonate with me so much? Like I can say that to people sometime and they'll go, yeah, what's the big deal? I mean, God's favorite, that's his love. But for me, it's so important. It kind of captures something about my heart to think about being God's favorite. Why, why is that so important? So this is that question I'm thinking about while I'm walking. And then I went, I know the answer, because nothing feels better to, to me, to Brett Allen, than to be your favorite. Like to be Marcos's favorite was so good. Ah, I live for that. If somebody went up to David Swanson and said, hey, I know you got a lot of staff on your church. Who's your favorite? And if he said, oh, my favorite's Brett Allen. I would go, oh, nothing feels better than that. Or to be my wife's favorite, which I, I know I am, and, or to be a fellow's favorite or a friend's favorite or um, anybody. Just, and it's different than just being liked. I mean, sure, I want people to like me, but I want them to like me more than they like other people. I want to be their favorite. Nothing feels better to me than that. And as I was walking and continuing to think about that, I thought, Ding, the light bulb kind of went on. That's it. The good life for me, what compels me maybe more than anything else is to be people's favorite. Nothing feels better than that. And as I kind of reflected on my life, I thought that's true. A lot of how I live my life, the decisions that I make, the things that I do are in order to be people's favorite. That's the good life for me, for Brett Allen. That's what compels me. So that's me. I want to kind of turn the focus away from me for a minute and go, what's the good life for you? What compels you? What, what do you long for? What do you deeply desire? I love in 2 Corinthians 5, what we just read about Paul. He says, the love of Christ compels me. If you ask that question to Paul, he would say, the good life for me is the love of Christ. What is it for you? How do you find out? I think it's a worthwhile exercise, the time that it takes um, to answer that question for yourself. You need to look at your life. You need to look at the things that you do, the rhythms that you have, the habits that you have, the way that you make decisions, what inspires you, what motivates you. What is the good life for you? As you're thinking about it, I, I did write down a few thoughts about options. Um, I think there's probably a different one for every single one of us, but these are some potential good life, the things that would compel you, comfort, 
pleasure, financial security slash money, to be liked, to have power and authority, to win. If y'all watched the Last Dance series about the 1998 Chicago Bulls recently, 10 episode series on ESPN, basically about Michael Jordan, there was no doubt. <laughs> no one had to wonder about what was the good life for Michael Jordan. What compelled him winning? That was the good life. Maybe it's success or stuff or adventure or being a good person, intelligence, control, popularity, body image. Those aren't necessarily bad things at all, actually. They're just potentially what you live your life for. The good life is what compels you. I think it's also important to point out that sometimes it's not always something that we're trying to get or move towards. Sometimes it's something we're trying to avoid. Maybe the good life is never being alone. Maybe the good life for you is never failing or avoiding pain at all costs. What is it that compels you, that motivates you? What is the good life for you? Like I said earlier, we, um, that's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, the love of Christ compels me. Um, Paul wrote about his life in 2 Corinthians. He said this, and just as I'm reading this, think about because of his love for Christ, this is uh, what compelled him to go through all of this. It's uh, chapter 11, verses 23 through 27. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. This is Paul speaking. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and I've often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. What compelled Paul to live, go through all that? His love for Christ, the love of Christ compelled him. He lived his life for that. And so he would go through all that. What is that love that Paul knew? It's the gospel. It's what we sang about when we sang in Christ alone. It's Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you and for me. It's John 3.16. It's the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him, you and me, should not perish but have everlasting life. It's 1 John 4.10, and this is love. Not that God, you loved God, but that God loved you and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. That love that captured Paul, the good life for Paul, is the gospel. I wonder, um, has the gospel um, got your attention? Does the gospel still overwhelm you? Does the fact that God would say, I would rather die than live without you, and he actually did, 
have our hearts become numb to the love of Christ? Because the love of Christ is what needs to compel us. But I'm afraid for myself and for us um, that it doesn't overwhelm us like it used to. Um, It doesn't have that power in us. That's what Paul knew. He knew the love of Christ. It was the good life. It was what compelled him. I love this missionary story. Um, Missionaries gone off to a a tribe that's not been touched by civilization. They don't, they've just not been touched. So he goes there and spends a couple years learning the language, uh, translating it into a language. And so finally he's able to kind of present the gospel in their language to these people. Gears of doing that. And I love their response. This is the power. So when they got it, when this tribe got it, here was their response to the gospel, the fact that God loved them. They said, if he died for me, then I'll live for him. If he died for me, then I'll live for him. The gospel compelled them. The gospel was the good life for them. Christ's love compels Paul. In closing, um, back to my story, uh, recognizing that the good life for me is to be people's favorite. How did God use that? Uh, He used it in a great way. You see, here's where I came to. I thought, if God truly is my favorite, then I don't need to be your favorite. Because <laughs> what's better than being God's favorite? I don't, I don't need to be people's favorite anymore because I'm God's favorite. I was freed up to love others without an expectation or trying to earn some kind of uh, favorite status in their life. I don't need to be your favorite because I'm already God's favorite. Last story, and I think it summarizes or illustrates what I've been trying to say this whole time. A friend of mine was sitting in a class, um, Larry Crabb, of author and speaker, and um, was teaching this class. And there were 30 students in the class. He was in there. And Larry stopped in the middle of the class and said, I want to ask you a question, but don't answer right away. After I ask the question, just stop and think about it. And then when you're ready, go ahead and raise your hand and we'll, uh, you can answer. So here's the question. And my, my friend Buddy, who was in the class, said everybody was, gosh, what's this question going to be? Kind of sitting on the edge of their seat. And Larry says, what is your greatest desire? Silence in the class. But he said, you could tell everybody's thinking, my greatest desire. What is my greatest desire? So they're all thinking about it. Then after an amount of time, a, a girl in the front row raises her hand and says to Larry, my greatest desire is to be loved. And Buddy, my friend, said, like everybody, if they didn't come up with that answer, that's it. That's our greatest desire is to be loved. And then Larry in his uh, way and in his wisdom said, no, that's not your greatest desire. That's actually your greatest need. And it's been 100% completely and fully met in Christ. Your greatest desire is actually to share that love. Because when we're God's favorite, we're fully 100% completely loved. The need to be loved has been fully met in Christ. Christ's love for me has met my need to be loved. Now, my greatest desire would be to share that love with others. Because I'm God's favorite, 
because God has loved me fully. I don't need your love. I am already fully loved. But now Christ's love compels me to love, not to be your favorite, but because he has loved me. And it's my desire that you know that same love. May the love of Christ be the good life for you. May the love of Christ compel you. Let's pray. Lord, I just wanna say thank you for the way that you have um, not left me alone, that you have worked in my own life and made me aware of uh, what I live for. Lord, will you change me and transform me? May the love of Christ compel me. May your love be enough. Lord, I pray for all those that have um, listened in the last few minutes. Would you stir us in a way that would uh, lead us towards yourself? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.